Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Bryant. And there's Jerry Woosh Roland over there. <laughs> it's just getting worse and worse. Uh-huh. This is Stuff You Should Know. Wind tunnel a dish. Mm-hmm. Aren't you glad we're not in the same room so that you couldn't smell my breath when I went? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my daughter's gotten a bad habit of doing that, and she thinks it's funny. I'm like, it's really not. Of what? Of like breathing in, in someone's nose <laughs> on purpose, like <sighs> right in your face. I'm like, no one, no one likes that. Yeah, she's she's just entered the age <laughs> of what five to fifty five. <laughs> yeah, I where guess. that's something people do. Yeah, not not funny ever. I tell I you what, these masks that we're all wearing, this is a real reckoning with your breath though, isn't it? Oh my god. <laughs> it's funny. It's like a it's like an hour by hour uh slide into <laughs> right. into despair. <laughs> You're like, I don't remember eating garlic. Yeah, it's like in the morning it's like, Oh man, this is great. I love this mask and later <laughs> in the day you you need that toothbrush. Yes, it's true. They say you can't smell your own breath and they are wrong. And I'm brushing my teeth now more than ever because I'm yeah. scared to go to the dentist. Yeah, same here. I'm also flossing like a mad person, too. You're flossing right now. I can I can hear it. Wow, that was the most PC thing I've ever said. <laughs> Is what? I'm flossing like a mad person, not a madman. <laughs> and technically, I guess not. I would have yeah. said like a, um, a mentally ill health person. Yeah, like that. I think that's even bad. Who knows these days, right? That's right. Let's talk about wind tunnels. Okay, so uh, we're talking wind tunnels, um, and I had no idea how interesting wind tunnels were. I had an inkling yeah. that they were going to, that there was like more to wind tunnels than people realize, which is absolutely true. Um, but they're they're pretty they're a deep cut. Yeah, I mean there was way there's way more to them, and you can do way more with them and learn way more from them mm-hmm. than I thought because my experience with wind tunnels, like most people, is seeing the cool TV commercial. With the with the like green smoke flying over the car, right? To demonstrate how aerodynamic it is, and to be sure, that is a very big part of what they use wind tunnels for. Yeah, yeah. And Chuck, you know, you and I were in a commercial in a wind tunnel. <laughs> I thought you might bring this up. That was a wind tunnel, technically. That yeah. that um, indoor skydiving thing <laughs> is a type of wind tunnel. It's a vertical wind tunnel. Yeah. If you guys haven't seen that, uh, it's been a while since we promoted these things. We used to do these little shorts. Um, no, this was different. Well, no, but these were based on those shorts. Oh, oh sure, sure. Yes, yes. Yeah, we did these little shorts uh, that we called interstitials. Mm-hmm. Did a lot of them. And, and to me, it's like the best video work we've ever done mm-hmm. as a team. Um, I, I love Don't Be Dumb, but that was just you. Oh, go on. Um, well, it was great. It was you in a room, and it was this chair, and <laughs> <laughs> you sort of played a character. Yes, go on. <laughs> And some people had problems with the character because they thought you were making fun of a certain kind of person. Yes, sure, sure. <laughs> but that and wasn't then, true. It was all very right. kind-hearted and just okay. funny. That's right. That was really great. Thank you. Sure. Uh, and that chair is still here in the office, right? Yes, it is. And I believe my outfit still is. I'm waiting for the Smithsonian to call. <laughs> so, yeah, we did this um, TV commercial for Toyota that was very much in the vein of those interstitials where we were in just all over Atlanta and various parts of Atlanta doing funny no, that things. Was, that was L.A., remember? Well, no, this, again, talking about the original interstitials. Oh, my God, I'm so confused. 
Then when we went to L.A., we did the same thing. We replicated that style in Los Angeles. And long the upshot of this all is oh, no. we end up in a indoor uh, skydiving facility having a conversation like, you know, a normal conversation or trying to. That was the gig. The gig, that was the gag. That was, was the both, bit. Really? Yeah. And you get slung against the side of it at the end, which is kind of the funniest part. Yeah, really, really was. <laughs> it was supposed to be an outtake, and they made it an intake yeah. for sure. Those things were very difficult to uh, – if you've never done one before, they're – I mean, it was fun and kind of cool, but it's not easy. You don't just go in there and be like, hey, I'm floating. No, it's really, really hard, actually. Yeah, like you're working every muscle in your body. It's kind of like yeah. water skiing looks fun, too. Yeah, you were good at it. I was not very good at I it. I was okay, but it was it was tough. Yeah. So um, that was what would be technically called a vertical wind tunnel, right? Yeah. And they actually use those to to research spin, um, like uh, when something goes in a, a like a, a tailspin, like a helicopter goes in a tailspin. Mm-hmm. They would use a vertical wind tunnel to test for that kind of thing. Right, but the wind tunnels we kind of more think of are the horizontal tubes mm-hmm. where you see a car or something like that having the cool smoke blown over it for a commercial. Right. right. But they're very useful, um, and this is something I didn't really know. I kind of, I kind of just thought they were all these big giant things that you would put an actual car in. Mm-hmm. Most wind tunnels are these little desktop models that you use in a science lab, right? That have a scale model that you're using instead of the actual thing, right? Which which means yeah that you're using a smaller version, but that is precisely scaled down. Well, it's got to like, be. Eh, it's roughly the right <laughs> yeah. size. It looks the right size, doesn't it? Quit I'm, your complaining. I'm sure this plane will fly. This is close enough. But what's neat about that is that they can scale this thing down. They can subject it to, you know, the, the same conditions as they would a full-size model, but then they can correct for the data, for the, the, whatever, what the numbers they're getting, the output. They can correct to scale it back upwards um, just using math because yeah. if there's one thing that goes hand-in-hand hand with wind tunnels— It is math, friends, because the whole point of wind tunnels is to study aerodynamics, which is the flow of air or gases over an object. Um, And in this case, it's a stationary object and the wind is moving. But what they're really doing is simulating that object moving out there in the real world into wind. And, I mean, that's a wind tunnel. And when you put it like that, it sounds very simple. They are not simple at all. There's really nothing about wind tunnels that's simple from their construction to their cost to what they're used for to, to all of the different variables and conditions that they can test for. They're, they grew step in step, hand in hand with the aviation industry. Like we probably wouldn't have an aviation industry right now without wind tunnels. Um, and that should kind of give you an idea of how complex the stuff that that people are doing in wind tunnels is or, or the data they're extracting from these wind tunnels tests. It's not just like, look, that cool green smoke yeah. bending <laughs> over the car. That's for, for yokels like you and I sure. watching ads while, you know, in between golf. Right. <laughs> you know, like you're watching golf and the ad comes on. Sure. My brain. It's the best part of golf. The ads? <laughs> No. I've actually kind of gotten... Are you watching golf now? Yeah, kind of here or there. It's not something I seek out, but it, and it's not for the golf. I could care less about the golf. It's the, it's the views. It's the shots. The golf courses are just... They have the most amazing backdrops, and it's just so tranquil and calm. It's really something. Yeah, you know, I live uh, right down the street from the legendary Eastlake Country Club in Atlanta, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bobby Jones course, and I've been 
to one day of that one tournament. That's the only time I've actually been to a professional golf tournament. Right. And, you know, I stood there 12 feet from Tiger Woods in the tee box. It's pretty, pretty neat. Wow. Like just to see, because I played golf a lot growing up, and it, it's a hard sport. Yeah, it really is. And to see someone do it uh, per- perfectly right yeah. in front of your face yeah. with that much power, I was, it, was, it was really impressive. You know what, what would really help Tiger Woods swing? <laughs> if they put him in a wind tunnel, put some green smoke in the wind, and watched him swing, they could tell him how to do it better. You want smoke? I'll give him smoke. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Shout out to our, our Detroit crew from Man back in lot. the day. All right. So if you want to go back in time and talk about human flight, uh, you're going to look at things like da Vinci's uh, ornithopter in 1485 and kind of a lot of early stabs at flying were humans looking at birds and thinking, well, if we're going to fly, we're going to have to learn how to flap wings really fast. Yeah. And it made sense, I guess. If you're looking at birds, they're the only thing flying around. Uh, It would make sense that that's where they would go. But they knew early on, regardless of the flapping, that uh, they needed to understand wind and how wind worked with wings. And so they started going to these little hills and mountains, and they started going to caves that had, you know, they were looking for some sort of predictable constant wind so they could do some early testing. And they realized you just can't do it with Mother Nature. You can't get a consistent wind, Mm -hmm. not enough to get real data out of it and do that math that we need so so drastically to make this possible. Right. So, and and initially we got that assist from birds and that we knew wings had to be involved. Gotta have wings. The whole flapping thing really kind of threw things off for a while. But because we knew that there had to be wings, we knew that there had to probably be some ideal or optimum shape of wings. And that's really where wind tunnels first got their start, was in testing different shapes of wings or airfoils. And there was a guy back in 1746 named Benjamin Robbins who created a whirly arm, um, which is basically like a... It was a centrifuge, basically, is what he created. Yeah, I had a hard time picturing this, and there's only there's this one very rudimentary sketch that made it even more confusing. Okay, so just just imagine you have like a, a pole coming out of the ground uh, vertically, and you have an arm attached to that pole, and the pole can spin around in a circle, like a centrifuge, like one of those uh, G force testers that they have at in like um, like astronaut training. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Or one James of those things Bond that goes movies. around really fast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That thing. This is what that guy invented, but it was like with wood and in, in, in the dirt. It was and it didn't go that fast, but you could affix a uh, like a wing type that you were testing to see if it worked well to the end of it and push it through the air. And it didn't really help this guy figure out what wing style or size was the best, what it helped him figure out is that it doesn't have that much to do, if anything, with flapping. We don't need to be wasting our time inventing machines that that flap their wings because that's not it. It's all about this thing called lift and drag and the proportion between those two. And if you can figure out how to get more lift and decrease drag, then you can you can really make some, you can fly, basically. And this was the very first inklings of that that Benjamin Robbins came came up with. Yeah, and what I saw was that Robbins really kind of pinpointed drag, like the shape is super important. Mm-hmm. And then after him, Sir George Cayley yeah. had his own whirling arm, and he's the one that really figured out lift was a key. 
uh, after they realize the shape of the thing matters, the um, more than the shape, like the size of it matters. Yeah. Size does matter. Especially and, when you're flying. Especially when you're flying. And uh, that if you could just get a quick enough takeoff, you don't need to flap at all. All you need is a lot of speed at first, which they could have also gotten, frankly, by if they would have kept looking at birds yeah. and realized they eventually stopped flapping. Right. They might have realized, oh, you actually don't need to flap the whole time. You can glide if you've got enough speed. Right. And, and well, actually, a lot of the early flying machines were gliders. It was when the, the Wright brothers were not the first people to um, engage in, in human flight. There is a monk named Elmer of Malmesbury who has the first recorded human flight back in 1050. CE, not BCE. Mm-hmm. And um, he, he, you know, that was almost a thousand years before the Wright brothers. Um, but the Wright brothers are credited with, with um, the, like an engine powered flight, human flight, right? Sure. So they, they were dabbling in, in what's, what Kaylee and Robbins, well, Kaylee especially had figured out that you need thrust and there's just nothing around that's light enough to produce enough thrust. So Kaylee actually gave up and went and joined Parliament for a while before he finally created a flying machine 50 years before the Wright brothers. What a and loser. He, he, made his, <laughs> um, he made his coach driver test pilot it. And the coach driver was so scared, even though the flight was successful, that when he landed, he was like, I quit. I quit. I'm not, I don't work for you anymore. Wow. Yeah. But George Cayley's very much overlooked uh, figure in the, the history of flight. He apparently figured out the, the general shape um, of a modern airliner back in 1799. Crazy. Yeah. All right. I say we take a break. Okay. And we'll come back and talk about the first wind tunnel right after this. So Kaylee has these uh, whirling arms going. Mm-hmm. Terrible name, but it worked out. Sure. Uh, then enter a man named Frank H. Winham. Uh, he was another Englishman, and he was in the Aeronautical Society of Great Britain. And he said, guys, we need, or excuse me, gentlemen, we need a wind tunnel, and we need it bad. And so in 1871, he had a, the very first wind tunnel. It was 12 feet long, mm-hmm. uh, about 18 inches square. With a 40-mile-an-hour wind, which is pretty good. It was. It consisted of your daughter going, <laughs> Oh, God. <laughs> Stinkiest wind tunnel. Her breath isn't that stinky yet. Kids don't really start to stink until later, I think. Yeah, until later. <laughs> but uh, the winds were powered by a steam fan at the end of the tunnel, and it worked pretty well. He was able to get that uh, leading edge of the airfoil and move it up and down, and change his angle, angle of attack and kind of see what shaped uh, and what angles worked best with, uh, mm-hmm. to get the best lift. But it was still sort of choppy, and it was rough around the edges. And if you really want to make this, you know, if you want to fly safely, you got to have a really, really, really consistent, very smooth wind to work with to get that data. And they still didn't have one at this point. No, they still didn't, but they were advancing by leaps and bounds here that people were building their own wind tunnels because <clears throat> up to that point, if you had a, in, a design for an airfoil for like a wing size or shape, 
<clears throat> you had to build it and then go take it out into nature and test it and hope yeah. for the best. And it was really expensive, really time-consuming. Time With your own wind, wind tunnel, you could make a model of the shape and test it out yourself and then see, oh, this is actually worth pursuing or this is junk. And that's it. that's what our dear beloved heroes, the Wright brothers, did in Ohio outside of Dayton. Orville and Wilbur Wright um, built their own wind tunnel. These guys were just like, Tinkerers. They owned a bike shop, but they were so fascinated and were following these developments in early flight that they just kind of got into it themselves. And they built themselves a wind tunnel. They had like two different or 200 different types of wings, I believe, that they, they messed with, selected the 30 best ones that they had developed in their wind, wind tunnel of their own construction and design. Um, and apparently, I saw somewhere that by 1901, after their wind tunnel tests, the Wright brothers, a couple of bicycle repairman in Dayton had the world's um, most accurate data, scientific data on air, on flying and wings in the world. And they'd come up with it entirely by themselves. Yeah. And here's the thing with these wind tunnels, especially early on and kind of still, it's not like they could use that wind tunnel and come out with a surefire product mm -hmm. using math and uh, and testing different designs and shapes and tilts and angles. But it was such a time saver and broken bone saver that you didn't just yeah. say, all right, well, I think this might work. Let's go and push uh, our cousin off of a cliff <laughs> or our, our coach driver or whatever and see if mm -hmm. it works. Mm -hmm. it, they still had their failures. All of them did. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, it would have taken, I mean, God knows how many more years if they didn't, like, at least start from a point of likely success. Yes. Thanks to wind tunnels. But I mean, like, look at it. They went from, they finished their wind tunnel tests in 1901. They had their first powered flight in 1903. Yeah, I mean, it's so, amazing. Two years. And it definitely did accelerate it, too. And so you can see from the outset that, that aviation and wind tunnels just developed together. And wind tunnels developed aviation. Um, but the first wind tunnels, like you said, they had a really big problem. And that was... The air that they produced, the stream of wind, was very choppy, very turbulent, and your data was not necessarily reliable. It wasn't too terribly much better than, say, going out into Mother Nature and subjecting, you know, the same model to those winds. Um, and that's a big problem. So one of the first things that they figured out how to do was to make the wind smoother so that you could get a reliable, smooth, steady wind um, in your wind tunnel whenever you wanted to use it. Yeah, and that's where we come to the modern tunnel. Uh, very, very smooth airflow. And they have five basic sections of, and they're, you know, they're all different, but they have five basic sections in, mm -hmm. in a modern tunnel. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the settling chamber, the contraction cone, the test section, the diffuser, and the drive section. Mm -hmm. So uh, we start out with this swirling air, and it's a big choppy mess. And it enters the tunnel, and we'll talk about how in a second because it's kind of cool, a little counterintuitive, but it makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. um, it goes into the settling chamber, which does exactly what you think. It settles that air. It straightens it out. Uh, they might have these little honeycomb holes or a screen or these panels, and that's just sort of the initial thing to sort of get it nice and smooth. And moving in the same uniform direction. Yeah, and then it goes down. They step it down through that contraction cone, mm -hmm. and that just, I mean, it's like anything else. If you make the the tube smaller, it's going to increase that velocity mm -hmm. of airflow. Yes. And that's where it gets to 
the test section, which is whatever. And the test section depends on what you're testing. If it's a desktop thing, the test section might be 12 inches long, mm-hmm. and you might have a tiny little model of an airplane wing in there. Right. And that's where the actual thing you're testing is and where all the sensors are recording all the data because, you know, you've got your visual. You've got these windows so you can shoot TV commercials and you can look at the thing. Right. But there's also all manner of sensors to pick up on all manner of uh, data and observations. Yeah, I think that's really cool that they still, you know, when they operate wind tunnels, they still watch through the window yeah. because there is a lot to be gained visually from from just human beings watching this stuff. And it's As cool. We'll see, you want to you watch it. Right. Yeah, for sure. Especially when the, they got the green smoke thing turned on. Oh, absolutely. So after it goes through the, um, the test section, it enters a diffuser, um, which kind of it, it slows things slows things down um, and maybe just exits the whole thing. It's there's kind of really, the opposite of the contractor. It just opens back up. Right, exactly. So there's um there's there as far as breaking. There's a lot of different kinds of wind tunnels as we'll see, but there's really kind of two categories, two broad categories. You've got open and closed circuit. And an open circuit is where you have wind going in on one end, going through the diffuser and the honeycomb and the test section, and then coming out the other end, blowing into the room. And another, with the closed circuit, it's just basically an oval. And so when the wind is generated, it it goes through the test section out the back, but then bends around an oval track and then comes back around again and through the contraction cone and into the test section again and again and can just keep going rather than just blowing out the other side. Yeah, and here's the part that I said wasn't intuitive, but it's really kind of neat when you think about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, The drive section is where this fan is, and this is what is just generating that airflow. And I always just thought a wind tunnel was a fan pointing at the thing. Right. They're actually behind the thing. Yeah. Because you don't want to push air onto something. You want air being pulled over something. And it it just makes total sense, but you never really thought about it. You just – I always just pictured a big fan blowing at a car. Right. But the fan would actually be behind the car, and it's probably looping around and smoothing out this entire way and then being gently pulled over the car. Exactly. In in just the same way that the fastest way to cool off, say, like a, a server room that you don't have good cooling on, you just throw uh-huh. a box fan the opposite way. So the box fan is blowing out into the regular room, but at the same time, it's sucking the air, the hot air out of the yeah, um, yeah. out of the server room, and cool air is rushing in to replace that hot air. So you're creating like a, a an airflow that's much less turbulent. When the fan sucks the air out, it's much smoother than when it blows it in, which creates a lot more turbulence. And that was the big problem that was facing like the Wright brothers and some of those other early wind tunnel creators is they their fans were blowing on the front of their models rather than having the fan behind it sucking the air over the models. Right. So these little models, they're kept in place. Uh, sometimes they're on wire. Sometimes they're on these metal poles. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes I think the really super high-tech ones use um, super strong magnets yeah. to actually hold them in place, which is pretty cool. Yeah. And then, again, you've got all these sensors all over the place attached to the model measuring I mean, we'll see. It gets really, really deep, but just at the outset, you can measure like wind velocity and air pressure and temperature. Mm -hmm. And if you're talking about airplanes, roll and yaw and drag and lift. And I mean, you can kind of do anything you want in there. 
And if you have, a, like, if you're testing an airplane or a scale model of the airplane you're going to build, it's on something called a sting, which is a pole, basically, that goes into the airplane's bottom, <laughs> butt. But then inside the airplane, the airplane's not attached to the pole. It's attached to something called a balance. And it's like all those sensors you just mentioned all in one instrument, like a, a cylinder or tube. And as the airplane moves and pitches and yaws and rolls and, and gallops and all that stuff, not gallops, though, I made that part up, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's acting on those sensors and the motion, the mechanical motion on those sensors is translated into an electrical impulse, and that travels down the stinger into the computers, which are picking up all of this data in real time and um, logging it and creating new new versions of the uh, the model based on that stuff. It's pretty amazing. What's even more amazing, that makes sense that that exists today. That's existed since, like, the 40s or the 50s in, in much more primitive form, but essentially the same thing that we use today, the same kind of balance, what has been around for decades. Wasn't there a Simpsons joke about y'all control? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, when they had one of those, like, backyard rockets. Oh, right. Now with yeah. y'all control. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And didn't, like, Buzz Aldrin or something say, like, wow, look at that y'all control. Yeah, I think so. That was good yeah, stuff. It was good. Uh, some other things that they measure, which <laughs> you might not really think about existing, is uh, viscosity and compressibility. This is huge. Or the tackiness or the bounciness of the air itself. So when you're thinking about air blowing over a car driving down the road, you don't think of that air as like being sticky necessarily. But when that air is moving over the hood of that car and the top Mm -hmm. of that car Mm -hmm. or the plane or whatever it is, uh, those little molecules are going to hit the surface and just very, very briefly, they're going to cling to that surface. And that even for that brief, brief amount of time, it's going to create a little boundary layer of air next to the thing that you're trying to measure airflow over. Yeah, which is, like I said, a very big deal. And, and yeah, an individual air molecule is going to stick for a nanosecond, just yeah. some ridiculously short amount of time. But there's so many air molecules that they essentially just replace each other as fast as they can move. And yes, they create this 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 boundary layer and as far as aerodynamics is concerned your your say your car blow go, like driving through this wind that's that's sticking to it um, now has a different shape that boundary layer creates a different shape or extends it outward beyond the actual physical shape of the car yeah and so even a tiny amount matters Yes, very much so. And then, so so when you're trying to test, like, how fast a car is going to go, how many miles per gallon it's going to get, that kind of stuff, that boundary layer makes a tremendous amount of difference because it changes, physically changes the shape of this, this thing when it's out there traveling at high speeds. So one of the great benefits of an air tunnel is you can test, like, what boundary layer is produced by this particular shape of this car under this condition. You know, if it's um, 90% humidity, but, you know, 40 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, and they're traveling at 80 miles an hour, what kind of boundary layer is produced? Okay, well, what about 75 miles an hour at 60% humidity? You can just change all these variables, and the wind tunnel allows you to simulate it and in, in, in basically um, get all this data in, in real time um, 
just lickety split, basically. Uh, although, one other thing, I just want to say this. We're making it sound like this is fast. This is actually, and has been, and especially until the age of computers, very arduous work. Because if you wanted to change one variable, if you said, well, this headlight is actually causing way too much drag, you would have to switch that headlight out with your next model and run the same tests over and over and over again with the different, different um, conditions and log all that data. So it was really arduous before computers. And you kind of get the idea that aerodynamics as a field of study is really given over to computation. Like that has been a huge savior for that field and helped it along and saved a lot of people a lot of time. Yeah, and you mentioned things like humidity and temperature. Um, there are all different kinds of wind tunnels, and they can be very specific as to what they want to test or very broad. Uh, but they're, they're all able to do things like that. You can dial in a temperature. You mm -hmm. can dial in um, atmospheric pressure if you want to see what something's like on Mars, uh, which they have to do if you want, like, the Mars rover to be successful. Right. They can, they can ice up a plane wing just by introducing refrigerated air and spraying a mist of water that freezes and lands on the wing. And you can simulate all these different things, humidity and temperature, and uh, it's just amazing that that they thought to, to introduce, you know, at first they started out probably just looking at aerodynamics of flow over a thing. Mm -hmm. But as they got more and more specific with their needs, they just said, you know what, we can design these tunnels to kind of do anything we want to do. Yeah. Like recreate any environment you can think of, basically. Yeah, it's true. And I mean, like, as, as we started to build planes that go faster and faster, we started building tunnels that simulated that really high-speed travel. And so we have hypersonic and supersonic um, wind tunnels that don't use fans at all, but they use, like, bursts of compressed air that blow right onto the model. Yeah, those um, those do blow at the thing instead of sucking behind it. Right. Um, but it's it's a huge release of, of air that is traveling so fast, it simulates, you know, like a jet flying through, you know, at hundreds or, you know, millions of miles an hour probably. Yeah, or, hey, what's it like for uh, a, a rocket a human capsule to... Uh, to come back into Earth's atmosphere right. at the, and, and not burn up. Like, they can simulate those temperatures. Yeah, there's one in, uh, I think, North Carolina. No, University of Texas at Arlington has something that can simulate that. It goes up to 8,500 degrees Fahrenheit. It's <laughs> crazy, man. It is. It's a wind tunnel. For all intents and purposes, it's a wind tunnel, but they have built these things so that they can simulate basically any any climate. And, you know, we talked about smoke, and it's always fun in those TV commercials to see the smoke blowing over the thing. Yeah. And it's a nice visual to sell cars that look super aerodynamic and are super aerodynamic. But that visible flow isn't just, you know, for the, the stoners in the lab department, <laughs> like late <laughs> at night to play around with. Right. Although they probably do that. But they uh, flow visualization is a real technique. Um, you might just have colored smoke. You might have liquid, uh, like a mist of liquid. You might have, they use this colored oil sometimes mm -hmm. that uh, you can see like the wind pushing the oil along the surface of whatever model right. you're using. And then they've got these high-speed cameras capturing all of it. And again, it's just, um, it's another variable they can actually look at rather than just using numbers and data. Yeah, I saw one, um, one was taking photographs at like 200,000 frames per second. That's how so high cool. speed it was. But it was t they were testing like a rocket or something, or a model of it. Should we take a break? Yeah, let's. All right. We'll be right back with more on wind tunnels right after this. 
So, Chuck, I was like, a lot of this really breaks my brain. It's one of those things where, like, oh, yeah, I totally get this on the surface. Let me scratch a little deeper. I don't understand this at all. And the reason why is because, you know, aerodynamics requires a lot of math and formulae and all sorts of calculations that I'm not. But you're great at that. I'm not currently (laughs) capable of doing that. But one of the things that I tried to shake down was when you do a scale model of something. Yeah. Do you have to scale down the conditions? And oh, right. um, sure. it, it turns out I wasn't the first one to think about this. Other people have, including people who work in wind tunnels. And apparently they do not do that. They will say subjected to the same wind speed as they would like the full size one. But then they go back and use math to adjust right. um, these the all the different variables. And again, you know, we talked about pitch and yaw roll, um, drag, lift, all sorts of stuff. I'm sure quite a few things and variables that you and I haven't even come up with um, or run across during our research. But in each one of these interacts with each other thing, right? So it's like one of those things where, you know, you have a, a, a 11 possible toppings for a pizza and that yeah. creates 12 million p- potential combinations. It's, it's a brain-breaking amount of math involved. Exactly. So that's what they're doing to to scale it down and scale it yeah. up. They they can say, "Oh, well, it produced this data if, if we run it through these these, you know, formula um, w- w- like we can show that actually like th- it will have this effect in the in the real world. They're using that level of math. Yeah. Anybody who can do that with math, I, I admire them deeply. If you're listening out there and you can do stuff like that with math, my hat is off to you because I will never be able to do that and I admire you. Yeah, and you know what? We've uh, taken some heat for kind of beating up on math a little bit. Is like, oh, boring because we were English and journalism guys and history guys, but uh, I've really come to appreciate math and doing this show. I'm I'm no better at it and don't care to be. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But I appreciate the, you know, math is the one thing that doesn't care about what you think about it. (laughs) It doesn't care about opinions and there's no interpretation or nuance. It's just, it's just math. And like what makes, like to look at these, to look at a math equation that would take a, a model of an airplane and a, a tiny little thing and a tiny wind tunnel and then say, well, now we just scale it up to this and this is how you do it. Right. Just multiply by 10. It makes me so nervous, but a real mathematician would be like, this is the last thing you should ever be nervous about because it's mm-hmm. it's just math. It's just right there. Well, it's just, and they probably, the idea of them of doing public speaking would probably scare the bejesus yeah, out of them. The thing is, exactly. Is, like different things attract different people, and that's great because that makes the world a lot more rich and complex that you have all these different people. If everyone was into math, it'd be a pretty boring place. Or if everybody hated math, it'd be a pretty boring place too. Like you need all different kinds. Different strokes for different folks makes the world go round, I think, is the rest <laughs> of it. All right, let's talk about some of these uh, wind tunnels in the world because they're amazing. Uh, NASA has one at Ames Research Center in San Jose or near San Jose. Biggest in the world. Biggest one, 180 feet tall, dude, <laughs> mm-hmm. 1,400 feet long. And uh, the test section on this thing is 80 feet tall and 120 feet wide. So you can put a full-size jet plane in that thing. Yeah, I saw that. I was like, well, what kind? And they said 737. I yeah. Said, oh, that's pretty good <laughs> that size. That kind, buddy. <laughs> pretty, pretty good size. So yeah, that's a I, – I, I don't know if they call it this, but I hear, hear – henceforth call it the – Big mamma jam. <laughs> yeah, it uses six uh, four-story high fans, mm-hmm. uh, each of which is uh, powered by six 
22,500 horsepower motors. Six fans, each as tall as a four-story building. That, man, that's amazing. 115-mile-an-hour uh, winds is where it tops out. Yeah, which is pretty great. Um, that There's also a lot. Apparently, no I was math. reading... None. <laughs> I was reading one, um, uh, some like blog post, I think, on like a Formula One site, and they were talking about how like every single company, every single racing team has in its facility a full size wind tunnel. Like it can hold a full size Formula One car at the cost of like 60 to 100 million dollars or whatever. But they are um, like cutting edge as far as um, aerodynamic study is concerned. Um, and the reason why is because, like, if you can shave a second off yeah. of somebody's time just by reconfigure the engineers reconfiguring the shape of a fin or a tail or something like that, that's you just it just paid for itself basically because it may have just won like the you know the yeah, Indy name, 500. Name one. Okay, <laughs> good job. There you go. Thank you. So there are uh, NASCARs. Obviously, obviously got a couple of these things in North Carolina, mm -hmm. uh, the home of NASCAR, Aerodin wind tunnel um, that is in North Carolina and it tests full-size stock cars uh, there's another one called wind shear there um, this is a closed circuit tunnel that mm -hmm. actually has a treadmill in it for cars it's got a built-in rolling road yeah Pretty I saw neat. that in a few places like BMW has one oh I'm sure with the rolling road you know what's interesting to me too is so we saw that the aviation industry and um, and wind tunnels kind of grew hand in hand. The auto industry didn't really look up wind tunnels until about the 50s is when they really started running their cars through those, those <laughs> yeah, kind of paces. And they went, boy, these cars are not aerodynamic. <laughs> no. Look at it. Look at that yaw control, though. <laughs> yeah, I love those old cars, though. I used My old uh, Plymouth Valiant that I used to have. Yeah. Um, this is obviously way before anyone ever thought of anything like anti-lock brakes. Uh -huh. And one of the most fun things I would do when I was driving with friends on a, an, an empty road late at night yeah. was get up to about 50 miles an hour and just slam on the brakes. Jeez. <laughs> it was so much fun, man. It was great. You would just go. <laughs> <laughs> you would slide about 100 feet before finally oh, coming to a rest. That was a great impression of slamming on the brakes too, by the way. It was good. And, you know, it – it was like we called it the sled because it was just this big, heavy <laughs> hunk of metal. It, it's not like I was sliding all over the road. I was just sliding very straight <laughs> in a line. What's the opposite of aerodynamic? Uh, that Plymouth Valiant. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Um, sluggish, like a wet sponge. Yeah, that's about right. So um, I think we should wrap this up on uh, the future of wind tunnels because people have been saying like, well, wind tunnels are, are dead now. We've got computational fluid dynamics, which is basically computers can figure all this out. If you put a shape into, you know, AutoCAD and say, computer, figure out what, you know, will happen if I try to fly this under these conditions, it'll tell you. Um, and they, people have said, well, you know, it takes a lot of work and a lot of money to run and build and, and use wind tunnels. Um, so I think they're probably going away. People who work in wind tunnels say, no, yeah. do not do away with the wind tunnels. We need them still. Because, yes, computation um, helps a lot with the early work. But when you finally have something that you need to prove— you really kind of want to see it in real yeah. life. You want to see that to smoke. To make sure, yeah, you want to see that smoke yourself. 
Um, and, you know, computer simulations can't simulate green smoke very well. you got to see that in, in real life. So they, they're saying that this is complementary technology and that they really – we need to keep our wind tunnels around because we still need them. Yeah, and I think we'd also be remiss if we didn't say uh, it's not just um, vehicles and seeing how, like, a space shuttle or a car or a plane or a dune buggy might might run in the wind. Um, if you want to see how airflow affects – like a computer uh, and components in a computer, you can oh, do yeah. that. Oh, yeah, good point. Uh, like how they com- how they cool computer chips. If you want to figure out the very best design for a wind turbine or a wind farm, yeah. then you can use air tunnels. Um, there are lots of other different uses that you don't think about just on kind of everyday products sometimes. Yeah, there's a. I have to say there's a uh, – at Virginia Tech, there's an anechoic, anechoic, I believe, wind tunnel – where they test wind turbines to see what kind of noise they're going to make. And they have, so the walls are, as far as the wind is concerned, it has four walls. But as far as sound is concerned, it has three. Because one of the walls is made of Kevlar. So wind won't go through it, but sound will go right through it like it's not even there. So they can take accurate measurements of what's going to happen when the wind hits this turbine what kind of sound is it going to make? And they're um, making the country folk who live among wind, wind turbines much happier. That's awesome. Yeah. So that's it for wind tunnels, everybody. There's probably more to it, but it's far, far beyond Chuck's or my grasp. So, again, hats off to all the aerodynamicists and all of their maths. Agreed. Uh, if you want to know more about wind tunnels, go check stuff out on the Internet. I hear there's a man with a page boy haircut who does a pretty mean demonstration of one. <laughs> no. No? No, that's just the printing press. Oh, okay. I thought he was a a factotum. He might be. A renaissance man. Um, Well, since I said renaissance man, everybody, it's time for listener mail. Uh, I'm going to call this on wetlands, and this is one from Brian from Queens. And this is very cool. I didn't realize this. There was a, a music venue in New York when I used to live up in New Jersey called Wetlands that I would go to. Mm-hmm. And I never knew there was kind of a cool story behind it. Uh, and now I do. So this is from Brian, and he says, you know, the New York City area is surrounded by salt marshes, and there are tons of ordinances protecting New York City's natural flood and pollution guards, as you describe them. Um, in the 90s and throughout the 80s and 90s at the Wetlands Preserve, it was an uh, activist nightclub named for the land that Lower Manhattan was built on. The club was on Hudson and Tribeca, uh, very much downtown Manhattan, which back in the early settlement by the Dutch was, uh, and sub- subsequent takeover by the English was all salt marshes. Hmm. Uh, Wetlands Preserve, uh, colloquially referred to as the Wetlands, was open from 89 to 2001. Uh, dual purpose was to create an earth-conscious, intimate nightclub that would nurture live music integrated with a full-time environmental and social justice activist center in the club's basement. Wait, what was the years it was open? Uh, 89 to 2001. There is a 100% chance that Jewel played there. <laughs> he doesn't list Jewel, but I bet she did. Okay, well, oh, he lists some people. He lists him. a few, but he also links to many more, and she's probably in there. Okay. I think I saw Ween there, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, cool. Uh, but he said, downstairs, activists planned protests, made pamphlets, wrote letters to politicians and lobbies, generated boycotts, and educated club patrons, while upstairs... Uh, we hosted, or they hosted, some formative performances for legendary rock bands uh, like Pearl Jam, Dave Matthews, Maroon Five, Oasis, Widespread and let's Panic. Let's not forget Jewel, <laughs> Fish, Rise Against, Fishbone, Bikini Kill, Blind Melon, and Jewel. 
Yes. Oh. Uh, the nightclub raised revenue for the activism center's effort uh, efforts, and the in turn, the activism center staff and volunteers educated nightclub patrons on environmental, social justice, and animal rights issues uh, through posters, educational displays, literature, etc., and film screenings. Uh, the New York-based Wetlands Activism Collective continues. Uh, the club is shut down, but they continue its environmental, social, and political activism to this day. And that is from Brian Stollery. Nice, Brian. That's pretty great. Never knew it? that. I think I went to a couple of shows at Wetlands. Oh, you did? And I never knew that there was something else going on there, and I kind of had forgotten about it. I wonder if when you show up, they're like, it's a cop's cop. Don't tell him what's <laughs> in the basement. Narc. <laughs> Uh, that was Brian, you said? Yeah, Brian Stollery. That's pretty cool. Thanks for filling in the blanks for us there, Brian. Um, and if you want to be like Brian and fill in some blanks for us, you can send us an email. Send it off to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.